We're going to meditate for 15 or 20 minutes now on the first two Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Back in 1978, I spoke at a little teeny conference in Aspen, Colorado, to some university students and some people that came in off the street. And at the end of that, I can remember so clearly one student asked, it's a very common question, isn't Christianity a crutch for people who can't make it on their own? My answer is very simple. You, you, you could give the same answer. I said, yes. That's all. I can't remember what he said. So let me just pick up the conversation and reconstruct it the way I, I would carry it on today if he were here. My next question would be, why do you consider it a criticism of Christianity when you call it a crutch? I mean, most people don't look at crutches and say, that's bad. That's a bad thing. They don't. So why, if Christianity is one of those, would you say bad? Now, I think... His answer would probably be something like this. Well, if Christianity is a crutch, then it implies that the only people it's good for is, is cripples. And that would be offensive to people who don't think that they're cripples. Jesus said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick... I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. In other words, the only people who will come to Jesus to get what he has to give are sick people, crippled people. What's the creed behind the conviction that says if Christianity is a crutch, it's not worth my desiring or trying to have? What's the creed behind that conviction? I think it goes something like this. We have confidence that we are not cripples and that real joy and fulfillment in life are to be found in the pursuit of self-reliance and self-confidence and self-determination, and self-esteem. I think that's the creed behind the criticism that says, if Christianity is a crutch, I don't want anything to do with it. Then along comes a Messiah who proposes to replace self-reliance with humble God-reliance and self-confidence with childlike God-reliance and self-determination with sovereign grace and self-esteem with magnificent mercy to the unworthy. And he is a stumbling block and an offense to people who believe in the worldwide religion of self-admiration. It is a worldwide religion. It is the most widespread religion. It has always been the dominant human religion since Adam and Eve 
fell in love with the image of their own independent potential glistening back to them in the eye of the serpent, you will not die. You will become like God. When they saw that the fruit was good for food and would make one wise to be like God, desiring their own independence and freedom from a father who tells them which trees they can eat and which they can't, they created a new religion. And it is the most widespread of all religions, the religion of self-reliance, self-confidence, self-determination, and self-esteem. Ralph Waldo Emerson, the American poet and philosopher, wrote a famous essay called Self-Reliance. It probably captures the spirit of of, of American life a hundred years ago, and I would say also today, better than anything you could read. There's a famous quote in it that goes like this. Trust thyself. Every heart vibrates to that iron string. Discontent is want of self-reliance. It is infirmity of will. Ha, there's the creed. That's the creed behind the conviction that if Christianity is a crutch, I don't want it. The creed is, the real disease in life is lack of self-reliance. That's the real disease in human life. And therefore, it is utterly dismaying to Ralph Waldo Emerson and to all the Terry Cole Whitakers of our day, and yes, even to us ourselves, that the disease we hate most, namely helplessness, is not cured by Jesus Christ. Instead, it is supported with a crutch. In fact, I was talking to one of the young men who heard me preach this last night, and I wish I had thought of what he thought of, so I'll toss it in here because it's better than mine. He said, it's not just a crutch, John. It's a whole intensive care unit. (laughs) Right on, John Genstead. The Lord takes the disease that we would like most to be rid of, and he makes it a doorway to heaven. Blessed are the bankrupt in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Why did he have to do that? Couldn't he heal this disease? Couldn't he take it away? Well, what does it mean? What, What does poverty of spirit mean? It's so blessed. It gets the kingdom. What is it? Well, I wish I had time to, to give you all 13 of my portraits from the Bible. I got 13 portraits of, of poverty of spirit, but I only have time for about two or three. So let's go right to Moses. I'll skip over Abraham and Jacob and David. And, well, maybe I won't skip David. Moses. When God came to Moses with a mission to lead his people out of Israel, he said, Who am I? that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt. Oh, my Lord, I'm not eloquent, 
either heretofore or since thou hast spoken to thy servant. I'm slow of speech and slow of tongue. I'm a nobody. To which God responds, Who made man's mouth, Moses? Who makes him dumb or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. God gets angry at Moses, not because of Moses' low assessment of his own abilities. Not at all. God gets mad at Moses because of Moses' low assessment of God's abilities. So the question I have to pose for us is, what is the biblical solution for people who are paralyzed by a sense of inadequacy? Paralyzed by guilt. Paralyzed by a sense that they're worthless and useless in the kingdom. What's the biblical solution to that? Because it's everywhere. Answer, I believe with all my heart, is not self-esteem. Now, listen carefully, because there won't be five other people in Minneapolis that will tell you this. Well, maybe there will be. The biblical answer to people who are paralyzed by a low sense of their own abilities is not to build their self-esteem. God did not respond to Moses by saying, Stop putting yourself down, Moses. You are somebody. You are eloquent. That's not the biblical way. God said to Moses, would you stop looking at yourself? Would you look at me? I made your mouth. I love you in all your inadequacies. I I promise to go with you down to Egypt. I will put words in your mouth and speak through you. I will magnify my power and grace in your weakness. Now go. The biblical solution to paralysis of a sense of inadequacy is not self-esteem. It is sovereign grace. You can test whether you understand what I mean by whether or not you're willing to put in your mouth the words of Isaiah 41, 13, where the Lord looks at his people Israel and says, Fear not, you worm Jacob. I will help you, says the Lord your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. That's the biblical answer, brothers and sisters. He does not come to his sinful people and say, you're not a worm, you're a butterfly. He says, fear not. I love you. I will be with you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my victorious right hand. That's all he says. Let's take uh, William Carey as a little test case. William Carey had very low self-esteem. He castigates himself again and again in his letters and 
journals for his sin. He had a terrible disease when he was a little kid. He lost all of his hair. He was so ashamed of that. When the fire struck in 1812 and burned up dozens of his precious manuscripts, he didn't blame the devil, he blamed himself. He, he wrote and he, he said, the Lord has smitten us. He had a right to do so. We deserve his corrections. There was too much self-congratulation in our labors. When he gets to the ends of his life and he outlived all four of his fellow missionaries, he writes home to Andrew Fuller with these self-deprecating words, I know not why so fruitless a tree as me is preserved. When he comes and he dies, or just before he dies, he tells them what to put on his tombstone. Now before I read you this, I want you to ask this question. What was this man's secret of enduring 40 years in India without a furlough for the glory of God? What was this man's secret that he, in all of his disease and the fact that he had an accident in 1817 and limped for the rest of his life and that he was homely and that he was burdened with a sense of guilt very often, what was his secret for keeping on and translating the whole Bible into six languages and Parts of the Bible into 29 others. What was the secret of this man's productivity and usefulness in the kingdom? Since he had such low self-esteem. Listen to his epitaph. William Carey, born August 17, 1761, died June 9, 1834, a wretched, poor, and helpless worm. On thy kind arms I fall. I don't think the secret of William Carey's productivity and usefulness in the kingdom was self-esteem. A wretched, poor, and helpless worm, he calls himself to the very end, knowing his sins and his failures. He really did botch a lot. He was not a good father. His secret was in the last line of his epitaph. On thy kind arms I fall. That was his secret in dying and that was his secret in living. He cast himself a poor, wretched, despicable man on the kind arms of the King of Kings, because he knew the promise, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs are the arms of the King of Kings. He believed it. The solution for people who are paralyzed by a sense of inadequacy is sovereign grace. young man asked me during the hour between the two services, why did you preach that sermon? He was very angry. And I said, to exalt grace. Underline that. All of us speak out of our own personal experiences. Self-esteem is precious to many of you because that has been what people have taught you for healing and it has ministered to you. Exactly the opposite is my experience. 
to the degree that I have been allured to the impulses of self-esteem, I have not cherished grace as I ought. I want to love God vastly more than I love me. I want to esteem God's grace vastly more. And it has been my experience personally, and I have seen it in many others, that to the degree that self-esteem is made to buttress grace, as though, no, say it the other way, to the degree that that grace is made to buttress self-esteem, which is what most Christians would say when they talk about it. To that degree does grace slowly get transformed into something else but grace. Because grace is brought in by the biblical writers to break self-esteem, not to buttress it. Take Paul, for example, in 1 Corinthians 15.10. He said, I worked harder than any of the other apostles. And then he hears how that sounds. Very confident, very bold. And so he adds, he brings grace in to break it. Nevertheless, it was not I, but the grace of God with me. That is the recurrent function of grace in biblical theology. To break, not to buttress self-esteem. I have often said to people, why? In order to be happy, must you insert self-esteem between the love of God and happiness. Can't you strike an arch between the love of God for you and happiness? I do. God loves me. Unworthy as I am. I make so many mistakes in preaching. I get through with so many sermons hating the way I said what I said. I couldn't go on without the grace of God. But if, if I had to pump up my self-esteem to get happy, I don't know where I'd turn. Well, that's my, that's my life. And, and I believe with all my heart it's biblical. I don't think the solution to people who are paralyzed by a sense of inadequacy and guilt is self-esteem. It's grace. Another person asked me at the end of the service, what do you say? I'm preaching a new sermon now, so just it's all right. What do you say when somebody comes to you and uh, they're broken? I mean, they're flat. But you tell them. And all I could say was, I do my best to placard the cross. And paint it in big red and orange colors and describe Christ in his unbelievable love, dying for sinners. And I try to exalt the freedom of grace and that no sin is beyond the ability of grace to forgive. No habit is beyond the ability, the power of the sovereignty of grace to be broken. I just try to exalt grace and mercy in the hope that the Holy Spirit will take that truth and lift the burden of guilt and make them feel that no matter how inadequate they are as a human being, God is always greater than their inadequacies. 
And I never mention self-esteem. Never. And I don't see why it's necessary. Because I think it does not exalt grace in the long run. What I read, no matter how hard Christians have tried to help me see that self-esteem and grace go hand in hand, I don't believe it. Let me just mention one thing about David, and then I'll draw it to a close. This is real important for clarification. You all know what David said when he committed adultery and and, uh, murder. He said... The sacrifice acceptable to God is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. And, and we all say, well, of course that's the way you respond after sin. But what, what do you say? What does somebody like me say? If you were to ask, okay, all right, yeah, sure, you should be flattened after you commit adultery. But what about the times when you're, when you're doing good, when you're living in the power of righteousness? Then what do you say? And that's a good question. Let me give you an illustration from David. There was an occasion when all the people were giving generously to the building of the temple. It was a grand day in Israel. There was positive feeling. Oh, I believe in positive feelings. It was everywhere. And so David comes to the Lord and he lifts his hands in prayer. What does he say? He says, 1 Chronicles 29.14 Who am I that I and this people should be granted to give willingly to the Lord? He resisted the impulses of self-esteem at the moment of His highest virtue. And he drew all attention to the sovereignty of grace. That's the kind of church I am trying to create. That's why I preach this sermon. When you are given victory, when God comes into your life and overcomes that bad habit, makes you strong, gives you eloquence, makes your marriage good, makes your job right, fills you with a positive feeling Say, who am I that I should be granted thus willingly to love, to do right, to be eloquent, to be kind? Glory to God when I'm low for forgiveness. Glory to God when I'm high for enabling grace. Esteem, esteem, esteem to the Lord of grace. Can't we live like that? Do we have to talk about self-esteem? Poverty of spirit is a sense of powerlessness in ourselves. It's a a sense of spiritual bankruptcy. It's a sense of moral uncleanness. It's a sense of personal unworthiness. It's a sense that if there's going to be any life, any hope, it's going to be all of God and all of God. Grace. Blessed are the poor in spirit who mourn. I don't see any other way to explain these two beatitudes, brothers and sisters. 
Blessed are the bankrupt in spirit. Shall we stand for closing prayer? Oh, Lord Jesus Christ, if I have said anything wrong, strike it out in the minds of this people. If I have said anything that is not motivated by love for them and a longing to see grace magnified, strike it out in the hearts of this people. But Lord, do whatever you must do to exalt the glory of the freedom and the sovereignty of your grace in our hearts so that in our horribly low and depressed moments, we know that there is forgiveness. And in our glorious moments of achievement and virtue, we know that it is all of grace. So that when we're low and when we're high, you get the esteem. You get the glory. Through Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen.